Um, excited to have you here this morning as we do week three of Hebrews, no, week four of Hebrews, and I couldn't fit it all in in this lesson, so I'm going to do one more week of Hebrews next week, and that should bring Hebrews to a close, and we'll move on from there. Now, here's the start for this morning. <clears throat> when I was in high school, I had a friend, he's still a good friend of mine, works at the law firm, Kevin Parker who's one of my best friends. And he said to me, there's this book you got to read. And I was, yeah, 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 I know. There's lots of books I have to read. He says, no, 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 this is a great book. It's called The Hobbit. And I said, okay, that's one of those goofy books about goofy little creatures in a make-believe world. You know, I was reading, uh, I was, this sounds really impressive. It will not be when you hear the end of the sentence, so hang on. At the time, he said that I was just finishing reading Franz Kafka's The Metamorphosis. Now, that sounds impressive, except for the fact I didn't understand any part of it when I read it. Okay, so it wasn't like, oh, he was such a smart little boy. No, I couldn't understand diddly squat about it. But I did read it, and I was enjoying And I was, well, Kevin, you need to read this. And, 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 but The Hobbit did not fit into my, my um, uh, idea of what I would read. And so he gave it to me anyway, and he said, read it. And I found myself stuck one day where I had two things. I had my Latin book, and I had The Hobbit. And I had a choice between studying my Latin or reading The Hobbit. Page one, I started reading The Hobbit. I loved it. It was fantastic. I absolutely ate it up. Now, how many of you have either read The Hobbit or seen one of the movies? Almost everybody. I read The Hobbit. I loved it. Immediately after it, I grabbed the trilogy, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, and I read it as well. And then I just started reading that whole genre, read everything I could get my hands on. Absolutely uh, amazed by it and appreciative to Kevin Parker uh, all the way till now. So you remember the story. Uh, Bilbo in The Hobbit, uh, uh, his uh, nephew in the, the Lord of the Rings, gets the ring, the precious ring, that when you put it on, it makes you invisible. I was in college before Dr. Harvey Floyd, my Greek professor, opened up our eyes to where Tolkien got that inspiration. He got the inspiration from Plato. Plato in the Republic tells the story of Gyges' ring. Gyges is a shepherd. And he's out shepherding his flock when because of rains and, and weather, there's a big divide, a chasm opens up in the earth. And he sees a full-size stallion and a man, a, a statue in the chasm. He goes down there and the man has nothing on at all except a gold ring. And so Gyges, the shepherd, takes the gold ring off of the statue and puts it on and wears it. Well, fast forward the story a little bit. Gyges is at a wedding and he's fiddling with the ring. And he turns the ring backwards where the, the collet, the, the little part that the, like you can think a signet or something, but it's the collet on the ring is inside his the inside collet, he turns to the outside or vice versa. I don't remember. And when he does, he disappears. And he realizes he's disappeared. Then he turns it back the other way. He reappears. 
So unlike Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, it's, he doesn't disappear when he puts it on. He disappears when he turns it a certain direction. And Plato tells this story because here's Plato's question. Take a moral and upright person. Take an immoral thief. Give them both Gyges ring. And it's just a matter of time till you will not be able to tell them by their actions. Because a moral person, if they have true anonymity and there's no outside check, will do the most immoral things. And so Gyges, a good moral shepherd, once he realizes he can be invisible, he makes his way to the palace. He ultimately seduces the queen. He ultimately kills the king. All without anybody knowing who did it. And he becomes king of the land through thievery, murder, and, and debauchery. And, and the, the moral to, the Plato's moral is, it is fear of being caught, or fear of image destruction, or other tethers to our actions that make us behave. And if you could behave with no one knowing what you were doing, in full anonymity, you would be stripped of any morality you've got beyond those we label immoral. Now, take that ring concept from Plato, Gyges' ring, go back into Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, and Tolkien gives a hint of the same thing. Because you take a very moral and upright little hobbitses. You take Bilbo Baggins. And when he's got the ring, suddenly he's not as moral and upright. He hears the call of evil. When Frodo Baggins wears the ring and the Lord of the Rings, the dark horses, the horsemen, and evil senses his presence and comes to chase him down and to make him evil's own. And that's the power of anonymity. Now, this should cause all of us to ask this question. Maybe, by the way, some of you are out there thinking, well, I would not be so bad. I've got true morality. Be careful. Pride comes before a fall. We're not quite as tough as we think we are. But here's what it does ask me and, and what I hope it asks you. What are the checks that keep your life in balance? What are the tethers that anchor you? What is it that makes you stable? What is it that makes you do the right thing, not only even if no one's looking, but if no one will ever know? That's the question. Now, I've been in an email exchange with a, a gentleman up in Canada who, who is at a point in his life where he doesn't uh, uh, see God and acknowledge God as existing. 
And I've referenced him before in this class. But this gentleman in Canada is saying at least, you don't need God to lead a moral life. You could have no God and you would still have morality simply because you choose to. And I've responded to him with something very different. I've said, I disagree. If there really is no God, then there's no basis for any morality at all. Oh, you might say, well, yes, you've, you've got it instilled in you through evolution. Well, okay. But if I recognize that it doesn't really exist, it's just some way I've been wired, then I feel free to abdicate it. And this morality issue, I think, is a huge issue because it is a, a true sign that we are made in the image of God. We are hardwired for His morality. And I'll harp on it again at another time. But I ask you, what keeps your life in balance? Because one of the core things for me, oh, don't get me wrong, my family does. My, my uh, ministry to you does. Um, my, my sense of decency that I grew up with from my family does. But if I'm not around my family, if I'm not around you, if I've got Gaiji's ring and what I do can be invisible, what is it that keeps me moral? It is the faith that I have in the Lord Jesus Christ and in God the Father. That's what keeps my life in balance. That's what makes me want to do right even if no one's looking. Because someone is looking. And not only is someone looking, but that someone, God, longs to be in a relationship with me. And that relationship must be rooted in His character. Not mine. He pre-existed me. He is the source of life. If I want to walk with Him, it's got to be the way He walks. Because He's not going to change and become imperfect like me. So, with that idea, I want to look at faith in the Hebrews chapter, which is chapter 11, which deals with faith. Now, we got to do a little run-up to it. It actually starts at the end of 10, and it actually goes into a little of 12. But this faith concept in Hebrews is a huge concept. And so as we're looking at faith, I think we need to start with a definition. And I want to give you the definition of the Greek word pistis. Pistis means faith or belief in the Greek. Same... same um, same word, faith, believe, noun, verb, it's the same root. Pistuo is the verb, I believe. Pistis is the noun, faith or belief. What does that Greek word convey? What's the semantic range of the Greek word? You can't just trade it out one for one with an English word. Greek doesn't work that way. This is a word that has thousands of years on our English word. And so we need to understand the Greek word 
and that'll help us facilitate this idea. So this Greek word pistis is translated faith, and that's a good translation, but it's also translated trust. Because the Greek concept of faith isn't simply a concept of of, um, a mental belief, but it's also a concept of trust. Now, we use the English word faith that way some. If I say to you, you say to me, uh, um, um, all right, I was playing racquetball with Louis Miori yesterday. And it was at a critical point where he was going to actually win a game if I lost the point. And he wasn't going to win the match. Let's not get over concerned here. <laughs> One game does not a match make. But he was going to eke out the game. So I'm running up toward the front of the wall, and I hit a kill shot. It's brilliant placement by fortune and luck. I'll not take credit. But I hit it, and I'm thinking, ha, the game is over. Or not over. But I've just rescued the serve back so I can win the game because there's no way he's hitting it. And in that split second, as I realize I've hit a winner, it passes and it grazes a hair on my leg. I mean, if I shaved my legs, which I do not do, with due respect to you bicyclers out there who might, I would have not lost that game. But because it grazed a hair... I have lost the point, and he wins the game. Well, he doesn't realize it grazed a hair on my leg. I mean, it's not like it deflected the ball. It grazed a hair on my leg. It was the whisper of the wind of the ball that went by me. And he's stomping off the court all upset for, for because, of, and I called him back and said, time out, time out, time out. That's your game. He said, what do you mean? I said, it grazed the hair on my leg. He looked at me and he said, wow, that's honest of you. Like he's stunned. Okay. (laughs) Now, I could have said at that moment, hey, don't you have faith in me? When I say, don't you have faith in me? I'm not saying, do you believe I exist? I'm saying, don't you trust me? You know, I mean, if I can't, if I can't be honest about a stinking game of racquetball, heaven help me. Don't you have faith in me? So we use that word faith a little bit to mean trust or to mean confidence. It does convey the idea of a mental belief, a mental assent. But it's also an assurance. It's even translated, (laughs) sorry, the E kind of left. It's translated assurance as well. And so that's this concept. You can see it as we build up to the Hebrews passage, looking at Hebrews chapter 10. Look at it starting with about verse 38. Hebrews 10, let's go back to about 37. Yet a little while, the coming one will come and not delay. This is quoting out of uh, the book of, of Deuteronomy. The coming one will come, our Habakkuk, excuse me. The coming one will come and will not delay. 
but my righteous one shall live by faith. Now, we are, by and large, an evangelical Christian lot who know the importance of putting your faith in God for your salvation. But this faith is talking about something different here. This is talking about living by faith. Habakkuk, the Old Testament prophet, says, Yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay. God will come to his people in a special way, which we understand to be Jesus. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. God delights in a life that is lived by trust and, and, and an assurance in God. So the writer says, but we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed. We're those who have faith. We're those who have faith that preserves their soul. It, 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 it keeps our lives where they need to be. Faith, the writer says, is the assurance of things that you hope for. Hope, that Greek word L, peace. Things you confidently expect. It's that assurance that what you expect is going to be there. It's a conviction a deep-rooted conviction of things that you've not yet seen. By it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand the universe was created by the Word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. This is not some Plato world where there's a just a mishmash of things that God organized together. God created out of nothingness. And we trust in the God who's able to do this. So this is the framework for the, the passage, the, the chapter that we've got coming up. And what the writer does, what the preacher does in the book of Hebrews is really fantastic. If we go back to the PowerPoint, please. What the preacher does in the book of Hebrews is he says... I'm, I'm not talking about a saving faith per se, though that's certainly included. I'm talking about the life you live by faith. And he does a lot of what Pastor David's been doing about preaching through the Old Testament. He says, let's just go to the Old Testament. Learn the lessons of faith from those who have gone before us. And so he begins with the passage out of Genesis dealing with the sacrifice that Abel offered in contrast to the sacrifice of, of Cain. And I think as we look at this, we're going to see the lesson from this is a sacrifice for God, a pure sacrifice, comes from a pure heart. It comes from a heart of faith. Look at the lesson. In Hebrews 11, it reads this way. By faith... Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. Through which he was commended as righteous. God commended him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Now, this is an interesting illustration of faith. 
Because if you go back and you read the story of Cain and Abel, the word faith is not used. You go back and you read this story, and what you've got instead of of the the usage of the word faith is just a very clear illustration and story of what happened. Here it is in Genesis 4. In the course of time, Genesis 4-3, in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Now, you read this and you think, what does that have to do with faith? Is the writer of Hebrews just messing with us? Is he reading out of a different version? Commentators have quizzed over this for well over a thousand years. St. John Chrysostom is preaching on this, trying to explain it. Let me make a suggestion. If we were a first century Jew, I think this would make real good sense to us real fast. Here's the reason why. In the course of time, Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock. Do you see the difference? Let me give you a hint. First century Jews understood that you brought sacrifices to the Lord. We don't do that that much anymore. We certainly don't do it in a, in a ritual sense in the temple. But there were real important, real top level sacrifices. By the way, it was fine. There were sacrifices that were of the fruit of the ground. But you were to bring the first fruits. You don't bring God out of your abundance. Your faith is, I can give God from the first fruits, trusting he will make sure that the fruits are adequate for my needs. You see the difference? The writer here is pretty clear in Genesis. Offers a fruit offering of the fruit of the ground. I got some extra oranges. I'm going to give some to the Lord. I know I'll be okay. I got plenty of oranges. Or Abel, the firstborn of his flock. And then I'm just going to trust that the Lord's going to give me more offspring. And my flock will continue to breed. It's the difference between offering the flock the old lamb or sheep that's past childbearing age, I give this one to the Lord, or offering the brand new first one, never knowing if you'll get another one. And that's an, that's an element of faith. 
That's an element of trust. So if we go back to the PowerPoint, we can see the vignette here is your faith life is one where God's not just interested in what are you doing for it, but where's your heart in it? The faith life says, I'm doing this not just to do this for God, but how I do it, the motive behind it, the love for God, the trust that God's going to take care of the consequences needs to be behind our giving to the Lord. And so our point for home from this, this is something I'm going to try this week. I'm going to try and serve God with my heart and not simply my actions. I'm not simply going to try and do right by Him, but I'm going to try and do right in faith and in trust that he's taking care of the circumstances because it's, I'm doing it out of a, a loving trust of God. I want to walk by faith. I want to trust God, not simply do right. But I want it tied to the fact that, Lord, I know in acknowledging you and in doing this right, you will take care of my tomorrow. I don't have to worry about it. Next example. Enoch. Enoch has a testimony of faith in the Old Testament. The testimony to me seems to be, you seek God. You seek to draw close to God. Look at the story of Enoch. Enoch is found in Genesis chapter eh, 5, I believe. Let's see if I can't find him here. Yeah, here it is, 5, starting with verse uh, 21. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. That's it. Now, that, to the writer of Hebrews is a story of faith. It's an interesting story. It's one, Enoch is a fascinating character in history. Because the story indicates that Enoch was not and God took him, the Jews thought Enoch was someone who might be able to come and go as he pleased. And so you find a number of writings that supposedly were authored by Enoch that were in existence at the time of Christ. And so those writings, the book of the secrets of Enoch, um, which, by the way, is even quoted in the book of Jude. Uh, the, 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 these are writings that, that we've still got today that you can read. Not all of them, but some of them. So this idea of Enoch was one that really interested and, and piqued the interest of people. There were Enoch writings in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, uh, Enoch was a popular character. But here's what the writer of Hebrews says. He says that, the, that Enoch sought to draw near to the Lord. Look at the passage in Hebrews for a moment. The Hebrews passage, should have kept a bookmark up here. The Hebrews 11 passage says this about Enoch. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended 
as having pleased God. And without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. That if you seek him, you'll be, you will find him. Now, you see that the writer of Hebrews says that Enoch was someone with whom God was well pleased. But if you read the Genesis passage, it doesn't say that. It just says he walked with God. So you start thinking, man, this writer of Hebrews, he's kind of not got the same Old Testament we have. Oh, yes, he does. The Hebrew word for walking. The Hebrew word for walking is not just a reference to physical walking, but it's a reference to how you walk, your conduct, your character. You walk the straight and narrow. The Greek word for walking means just the physical act of walking. So when the Jews translated their Old Testament into Greek, they didn't want to use the Greek word for walking in that Genesis passage where it says Enoch walked with God. So instead of using the Greek word for walking, which would just mean that, you know, it's like Enoch and God are holding hands and just physically walking. Instead of using that Greek word, they used the Greek word for well-pleasing. So the Greek translation of the Old Testament says Enoch was pleasing God in the way he lived, which is what the Israelites meant when they wrote he walked with God. Here's the thrust of that story. Enoch walks in a manner pleasing to the Lord. He sought God out. He sought to draw near to God. And he reached a point where he had drawn so near to God that God brought him home. And that's the beauty of the story. So if we go back to the PowerPoint, the point for home is there. The point for home from this story is, I want to work at this. I want to work on walking with God in a Hebrew sense. I want to work on a relationship with God by faith where I'm trying to live the life pleasing to him. And the intimacy that will grow out of that is something that the world will never be able to understand. But it's going to make it a marvelous transition when we go home in his presence. All right. So the third example of living by faith is the story of Noah. Now, we all know the story of Noah. And so I'm going to do Noah real fast. Noah's told to build an ark. And it's not because the internet gave him the weather forecast. There's no rumblings of thunder off in the horizon. He's told to build an ark when there's no apparent reason to do so at all. But God said it. And he did it. And as a result, he was saved from the judgment upon the world. And that's a pretty simple one. I'm going to take God at his word. I want my life by faith means. Look, some people think, and and, and it grows out of us as children. There are a lot of times as children, we want to know why. 
Okay, I'll do that, but why? Your parents say, do this and this. Why? And some parents just say, because I told you so. Knowing that that should be adequate, though it never really is. Because the kid who wants to know already knew you told them. Or they wouldn't be saying why. So hopefully, sometimes you'll have the patience to explain the why. But I got to tell you, sometimes you don't have the time. And sometimes the explanation is just not there. And I don't want to be one of these kids who says to the Lord, well, I'm going to do that, but you got to explain to me why. Doesn't make sense to me. I don't want to be that way. My point from home, living by faith like Noah, is a pretty simple point. I'm going to take God at his word. And I'm not going to do it because of anything other than the fact that I want to live by faith. And by faith, I'm just going to trust in him and what he said. I think that's, I think that's the smart thing to do. I mean, he's God. I'm not. He sees tomorrow. I don't. He can work the Sudoku puzzle of life. I can't. And I'm going to do that. Next, Abraham and Sarah. Oh, great story. Abraham and Sarah. First, and, and, and here, by the way, this whole Hebrews passage is a phenomenal. Here, we'll take an English lesson for a minute. This whole passage in Hebrews is one of the best examples in all literary history, if we go to the Elmo, of anaphoras. Do you all know what that is? An anaphora. Oops. Hold on, hold on, hold on. We can make life out of this. Anaphora. Anaphora. Comes from the Greek word, anaphora. (laughs) Here's what it means. It basically means you say it again. We have it if you do something like, um, oh, Dickens does it in A Tale of Two Cities. Um, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of light. It was the epoch of darkness. It was the, you know, and that repetitive, it was, it was, it was, it was. Or I want you to do it right. I want you to do it right now. I want you to do it right the right way and right on. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's that repetitiveness that's used as a literary technique. You have 19 times in the Greek. Piste, 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 piste. It means by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. In this chapter, 19 times by faith, by faith, by faith. By faith, it's just a rat-a-tat-tat, rat-a-tat-tat. So here with Abraham and Sarah, we've got by faith, if we go back, Abraham and Sarah, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, multiple times in their story. I love the first one. You got to move. Says to Abraham, hey, you may be nice and, and cozy there in Ur, but you got to move. Moving was no simple thing then. You didn't fly out ahead of time and find housing. You didn't stop at the Motel 6 along the way because the light was left on for you. You don't rent a U-Haul or pay the 
two brothers and a mother or whoever is the moving source. You can't go down and buy the boxes and the wrapping material. I mean, it's you leave. Where are you going? Leave. I'll show you where you're going. You'll probably never see your family again, your roots again, your history again. You're saying goodbye to everything. Pack up. You got to move. Which I could not pass up one of my favorite blues songs. And sorry, Dale, I did not play the version by the Rolling Stones because I want the roof to stay on. But um, Mississippi Fred McDowell. You know this song? Oh, you don't know this song. You need you need to get a light. You got to move. You got to move. You got to move, child. You got to move. But when the Lord, when the Lord get ready, you got to move. Yeah, here's the second verse. So it's like. You may be high, you may be low, you may be rich, you may be poor. When the Lord get ready, you got to move. You may be rich, you may be poor, you may be high, you may be low, but when the Lord, he says ready, you got to move. And that's the point for home. Lord, I don't know what tomorrow is, but you tell me to move today, I'm going to move today and I'm going to trust you for today. And Abraham didn't know where he was going, but he knew what the Lord had for him that day. And it's a marvelous thing. And not only does Abraham move by faith, but once he moves, he has peace in his circumstances by faith. Because Abraham recognized once he got there, God doesn't give it to him immediately. God doesn't give him the son. God doesn't give him any of that stuff. In fact, God says, I'm going to give you a son, and it seems to take forever. But Abraham lives by faith, and he accepts his circumstances. And 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 if your circumstances are wealthy, then heaven help you figure out how to use that health, that wealth for the Lord. If your circumstances are in poverty, then heaven help you figure out how to walk with the Lord in poverty. Paul says it this way to the Philippians in the fourth chapter. I've learned the secret of life. I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I have whether in times of plenty or in times of want. The secret is, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can do whatever God wants me to do today with the resources He's given me to do it. And my goal today is not to be fat and happy. My goal today is to live for the Lord and to do what He wants me to do. 
And that means I'm going to trust, have faith, and rely upon him that will give me the peace in my circumstances to do what I need to do today. And that's my prayer for home. Lord, may I be at peace, simply following and trusting in you. Abraham and Sarah, they continue. Sarah. Sarah's lifted up in Hebrews as a woman of faith. Look what it says. This is pretty cool. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Now, I've read the story about Sarah. She laughs. God visits her and says, you're gonna, your wife Sarah's gonna have, she's hiding in the tent. She overhears the angel say to Abraham, God's got a word for you. Your wife Sarah, even though she's old, she's gonna have a kid. Sarah starts laughing. Kinda blew her cover too. You know, she's eavesdropping is the way the story's told. She's like hiding on the backside of the tent. She, she, what, what are they, what are they saying to my husband? You know, and she, she's hard of hearing because she's old. She's having to really lean in. But you know how old people have zero regard for a filter, some. So when she hears the thing, she's just like, <laughs> bursts out laughing. And God points it out and says, yeah, joke's going to be on you. You're laughing now. Wait till you feel childbirth. And <laughs> laugh that baby out. And then, uh, uh, and so Sarah, now, where's the woman of faith here? To me, the writer of Hebrews is telling us something tremendous. We can still have that stumble. We can have that laugh. We can have that, yeah, that'll take a hand of God. It's okay to have even the doubts. But you live by faith. Stumbling, if we go back to the PowerPoint, stumbling doesn't invalidate our faith. Stumbling is just something that happens on the road to life. And God works in the midst of that. So what's my to-do for this one? I'm going to live past my stumbling. Yes, I have stumbled. We all stumble. But I am going to live past my stumbling by the grace of God. Then... Abraham is told to sacrifice Isaac. That's the Bob Dylan song off Highway 61 Revisited. God said to Abraham, kill me a son. Abe said, what? You must be putting me on. God said, no. Abe said, oh. God said, you can do what you want to, but next time you see me coming, you better run. Abe said, where you want this killing done? God said, out on Highway 61. Technically, it was Mount Moriah, but let's not quibble over directions here. Now, here's the story. Abraham takes Isaac up for the sacrifice. God has told Abraham that I will bring your blessing and the nation's blessing and make a nation out of your son Isaac. And then... Abraham's told to sacrifice him on an altar. Abraham believed, the writer of Hebrews says, that God was able to resurrect his son from the dead. 
And Abraham proceeds to take his son to the altar, confident of that belief. You see the hint in the story in Genesis. When Abraham tells the servants who've come with him with the mules, he says, y'all stay here with the mules. Me and the boy are going up to sacrifice and we will be back down to you. And so Abraham goes up on Mount Moriah, which history tells us is the threshing floor where ultimately the temple will be built. Mount Moriah is Mount Zion. It's where Jerusalem will be. And Abraham is about to kill his son when God stops him. And Abraham has prophetically told his son, God will provide the sacrifice. Because his son's going up there, Isaac, like, hey, dad, we got the wood, we got the fire, we got the knife. We don't have the sacrifice. God will provide it. And God did. I mean, that story is so graphically illustrating that the death of Abraham's son wasn't going to do anything. But we see in that image, Abraham, whose name means the father of many, is the prototype of God, the father of many. And Abraham would get nowhere sacrificing Isaac. But as he prophetically said, the Lord will provide the sacrifice and God ultimately will sacrifice his son for the many. And that's the sacrifice that counts. But I read that, I think, man, Abraham, talk about walking by faith. He trusted God with what was most precious to him, his son. And that really moves me because I've got to seek God in this sense. I want to learn to trust God with the things that are most precious to me. I got to trust God with my wife. I got to trust God with our children. I've got to trust God with the rest of my family. I've got to trust God with the, God with the things that are most precious to me. Knowing that he does not deal with them cavalierly. He doesn't disregard them. He is trustworthy. We've got more next week. I want to finish these up, but I'm going to pause here because we're out of time and I want to bless you um, uh, uh, before we go. And I, I look forward to next week. I'll have the rest of the handout for you as well. Lord, I thank you so much for this class. I thank you for the role of the faithful in history. People who not just acknowledge you exist, but Father, let you guide and direct and influence the way they live their lives. I bless everyone hearing this message, Father, with, with your, your I, I pray for your wisdom, but your power to them to seek you out, to seek to walk with you in the manner in which you walk. Father, I pray your blessings upon them to trust you with what's happening in their lives today, to know that you will take care of tomorrow to move where you want them to move, to be at peace where you want them at peace, to trust you. Father, we all trust you with our most valuable possessions. We may not be very good at doing it, but right now, Father, we commit to you at least verbally, as feebly as we can with our will, all of those things that are precious to us. Father, They we lay them at your feet out of a heart of faith, trusting you to do with them what is best. In the name of Jesus, amen.